This is kind of a music podcast. Swears can definitely be found on this kind of music podcast, so if you would prefer to not hear swears, definitely don't listen to this kind of music podcast. Thanks. Listener and welcome to Record Store Dropouts, a music-adjacent podcast for music-adjacent people. My name is Sean, my pronouns are they, them, and I used to work at a record store in Dubuque, Iowa, and we might talk about that at some point, but I don't think we're going to do that on this episode. Hi everyone, my name is Alex, I use they, them, their pronouns as well, and I am a musician and just have always grown up with music and love music. We record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and today we are talking about Black Belt Eagle Scout, who played at Communication on April 19th. This isn't so much a review of that show as it is an exploration of KP's music, and we're also going to be talking about making a safe and inclusive space for marginalized identities. Alex, before we get into that, though, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how we encountered KP's music and what we think about it. Absolutely. I think I started listening to Black Belt Eagle Scout unknowingly. You know how when you're done listening to a Spotify playlist and it just starts spitting out random songs that are somewhat similar? I really enjoy that function because that's how I get to know a lot of bands. And Black Belt Eagle Scout is definitely one of those artists that, even without realizing it, I just started saving songs that I really, really, really liked by them. And when the show at Communication was coming up, I knew by name that I really liked the band. But when I started digging into what their music actually entailed, I was like, whoa, I actually know so many of these songs. And I, I just really dig it. It's got such an excellent tone. And I think the way that KP writes and like layers and loops things, it really creates this really lovely weight emotionally, I think, to some of the tunes. And speaking of looping too, I think she does a really excellent job creating songs that kind of go through the same phrasing over and over and over again. And it just builds a little bit or sometimes it's slightly different. I'm thinking of particularly the song Sam A Dream. It's one of my favorites. And yeah, I've always been a really big fan. And it was so lovely to be able to see them perform at communication alongside disc yeah disc was awesome during that show they also do our theme music i was wondering what genre would you when you started listening to black belt eagle scout what genre did you think kp was you know i i think i would just have to if i'm being lazy i would just venture a guess at some kind of indie realm but (laughs) It's, it's really so much more than that. It's really hard to pinpoint. And I, I just think of like the many different sounds. There's some vibraphone happening, some organ piano stuff happening as well. In addition to, I think, the standard, you know, guitar, bass, drums kind of set up and, and keyboard as well. It's, it's hard for me to place. It's so much more than just indie to me. There's a lot more, not just under the surface. It's very evident in the music. It's just something I haven't been able to put my finger on. Yeah, I think it's really illuminating to look at Black Belt Eagle Scout's Bandcamp page. And now this might be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but one of the tags on this page describes the music as post-post-rock. 
<laughs> and I really like that. When I first started listening to Black Belt Eagle Scout, Tessa had actually put up a couple tickets for that show as part of WORT's Winter Pledge Drive. And there was only like one song that I felt like we could play, which was Indians Never Die. We talk a little bit about that on the interview in the second half of this episode. But Another Green World is an indie folk program. We play around with that a little bit. But listening to everything else on Mother of My Children, the proper debut album from Catherine Paul, as I was reviewing it, there are a couple different bands and genres that came to mind, right? So there's a droning open and a really heavy bass line on Just Lie Down that kind of makes me think of both Gloss, Girls Living Outside Society shit, which has disbanded, but a queer core band, and Lateralis Era Tool, which I don't know if that's okay for me to bring either of those bands up in the context of Black Belt Eagle Scout, but it's like, I feel like Catherine Paul can go in a ton of different areas. You hear it with the new single, there's an omnichord on there where everything gets like really light and floaty. Keyboard is a little more melodic and it feels like there could be like some doom metal or like stoner rock stuff going underneath. So it's really hard to, I guess, call her indie rock. She is on Saddle Creek Records, which does have many other indie rock artists, but she's doing so much more than just that. Beyond the music, though, KP is very adamant about identifying as a radical indigenous queer feminist, and I think that would be a good segue to talk about an Instagram post that she made on May 5th, which is National Awareness Day for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Relatives. So in this post, I'll just read it verbatim to quote my dream to create space for indigenous women, queers, two spirit, trans, non-binary, femme and body positive community to come to our shows and feel empowered so that space is for them. Today is National Awareness Day for missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and relatives. I want space where indigenous women in particular can thrive and feel alive. I have noticed backlash in my recent story posts about being uncomfortable with white men at my shows. If my uncomfort hits a negative chord with you, you don't belong here then, because this space is first and foremost for my family named above. I suggest looking up how much harm and violence white men cause indigenous women and educate yourself rather than shedding white tears on this page. And there's a little heart emoji. So we wanted to use this Instagram post to kind of frame a discussion about whiteness within the concert-going community here in Madison, and then maybe segue a little bit into some general tips about how we can make a more inviting space. But right off the bat, Alex, I'm wondering how this resonated with you. I feel like we're both on the same page, but I'm wondering if you could articulate your feelings about this. So when I first saw this Insta post, honestly, my initial reaction was very much like a, yeah, right on, like, absolutely creating space for folks with these identities, some of which I do hold, like, yes, it's it's high time. It is so important and vital that these spaces be created and embraced because so much of the music scene is so white. It's dominated by men and mask folks. And really, I think the thing that strikes me most is like this desire to center specific folks. It's not inherently excluding others. It's just shifting the center, right? We are Mm. or rather centering the margins either way you, you consider it. And that shift, I think, can be really threatening for people who maybe don't know that they've been centered this whole time or regardless of if they know or not, they're so accustomed to being centered in specific ways. I'm thinking, you know, 
we see a lot of, you know, shows and a lot of the time it's a lot of white folks, white men. And honestly, a lot of the bands that come into town tend to be men, right? And so when I, I think about shows that really bring me joy, it shows where I'm seeing myself represented in the artist. I think that's so important for everyone to be able to feel and have access to. And I think that access is so, so, so important. You mentioned representation, and I wanted to focus on that as kind of my general reflection about this same sort of thing where it's like, yes, of course, this is awesome, and we want to make a better space for people, right? And when I think about it, I don't want to get too much into a conversation about separating art from an artist. In short, I think that's bullshit. It just doesn't come from the void, right? There, There is this like inherent connection. That's a conversation for another day, though. In this example, though, I think I want to emphasize that point that you can't make this separation because as a white mask-presenting individual going to this show, it's not that I'm just enjoying this kind of abstract, ethereal, artistic performance, right? There's political meaning to it. Like, the personal is the political. It's ingrained in all of these things. And so for me, when I'm seeing a radical, queer, indigenous, feminist performer I think there are some things that I can still get from it and most certainly do, but I probably don't take as much away from it as someone who fits any of these identities that KP listed, right? And to be able to occupy a space where you see others who are in this community where you're not the other, I think that's very important for us to respect and not just in a passive manner. I was wondering if you've gone to any shows where artists have before they started playing, ask people to make space for any marginalized groups. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anytime I see gender confetti, for example, like it's queers to the front, trans people to the front, and I always see that being honored in the space. However, I will say that most times I see gender confetti, it's just a lot of queer folks in the space. How about you? Where have you seen that, if at all? So speaking of gender confetti, they played a show with Dumpster Dick and E.T., which is a duo from the Twin Cities. They're really fucking cool. Definitely go check them out. E started out by doing a land acknowledgement, which they had done all throughout the tour and then said something akin to, you know, black women, trans persons, people of marginalized identities to the front. If you have some sort of privilege or you're not in these groups, you know, step aside. Not necessarily like get the fuck out of here or anything, but just like make space and respect this area for others, right? Like allow people to come to the front and feel represented and actively included in the space, right? Overall, this was a really cool thing to see and to be a part of, right? And to respect. But I think coming away from it and upon reflection, I wonder why we don't do this more in general, even in cases where an artist doesn't make this kind of announcement or they're artwork isn't overtly connected to any sort of radical identity or politics, right? So, for example, Catherine herself didn't make this kind of announcement at the show. Yeah, that's right. But even though she didn't, it seems like it should be implied or coming from a marginalized identity herself, there's a certain degree of emotional labor that you have to put into this, right? And if you're doing it every single show, several times on a tour or, or what have you... That seems like it could take a lot out of a person. And ideally, if we want to build a stronger community, as opposed to seeing shows as a place where, say, you just want to go get shit-faced on a weekend, right? But if we want it to be 
an actively respectful and positive community that's not just there to be distracted from everything that's shitty in the world, but to like actively imagine a different future and use it as a kind of like sandbox or workspace. I think that potential for concerts is something that is maybe untapped in Madison. Absolutely. I completely agree. And thinking of other ways that we can, you know, make our community, you know, a better place to go to shows for everybody, not not just, you know, me myself as a white queer trans person. I I think I think I can think pretty selfishly. I think any of us have the capacity to do that. And I think part of this is we really need to be mindful of, you know, who's around us, not just like our positionality in the world and other people around that thinking from like more of a political lens, but I think like just physically, right? Like if someone's peering over your shoulder because, you know, they're behind you and they're not as tall as you, like I've been there, maybe, you know, makes physical space in show settings, right? And being more attuned to things that are happening, like more even a bystander intervention kind of way. If you see that some folks are uncomfortable, like actually stepping in is really, really important. But to zoom back out beyond just like thinking about individual behaviors and actions on this kind of micro level, thinking back to healthy communities where we can all engage in, you know, the music community and feel represented. It kind of reminds me of Half Stack Sessions in town. Half Stack Sessions is a group of women, LGBT, and non-binary folk who play music in the Madison area, and its purpose is to create space for musicians to grow and work toward higher visibility in the larger music scene. This is so, so, so important to have a group of folks So not just creating music, but I think like leveraging what power we all have. And I say we just because I'm a trans and queer person, not because I'm involved with half stack sessions, but consolidating all of what power we have to kind of create this platform through which, you know, there can be a scene for, you know, queer folks and trans folks to do music together and to be seen and promoted like that's that's really really huge for example like they put out the random band generator shows and their showcases have always been really really cool not only to you know see new bands but just like I went there and I was like oh my gosh like that drummer is really good I could tap their shoulder maybe or like that keyboardist is really like it was really awesome and almost networky in a way and I don't know if it was meant to be that way but it serves this kind of function where I don't know this social capital is being I don't know, like elevated or broadened. It's it, it creates such a it creates such an impact too as a queer trans musician in the area that's not really involved in any projects, knowing that there are people like me out there. People who are like you out there who are maybe more approachable given that their identities haven't been ingrained in these kind of histories of violence. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, yes. Speaking of half-stack sessions, Tone Madison contributor Emily Earhart contributed an excellent article back in 2017 called Half Stack Sessions Founders Push for More Inclusive Madison Music Communities and getting beyond creating music, right? Thinking about how we make these spaces more inclusive that aren't dominated by white men. One of the things to note and to quote Emily here is that it is important to recognize that inclusivity extends far beyond gender inclusiveness. Okay? And this reminds me of Sarah Marcus's book entitled Girls to the Front, The True Story of Riot Girl, which is about the political scene in the 90s, part of this third wave feminism. You have bands like Bikini Kill, Heavens to Betsy, others that are associated with this music. As a side note, Riot Girl is not a genre. It's a political movement associated with third wave feminism. Most of the quote unquote 
Riot Girl bands play a brand of punk or garage or DIY rock, right? So that aside, Marcus spends part of the book talking about several examples where the Riot Girls themselves were struggling with their white privilege, that this was a largely white cis group that, again, thinking about gender inclusivity is really important, but that doesn't mean you can't improve on other areas as well, right? So Marcus talks about a seminar where I believe it might have been Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill was talking about white privilege and how we can make this space more inclusive for black women, right, or women of color. And the conversation gets completely derailed by one person who feels targeted, who thinks that just because she's white doesn't mean that she's a bad person. Just like is completely missing the mark of this, right? But this is something that is pervasive and that we continue to deal with. Peach Kelly Pop's Allie Hanlon actually had an experience with a Riot Girl zine, which those things still exist, right? But the person who interviewed her, Allie ended up finding her Twitter account, and she was just posting a lot of, like, MAGA and white supremacist fucked up shit, right? And Yikes. Allie didn't know this going into the interview, but was just like, I, you know... This is surprising because you would think that in that scene, you would hope that you would be a little more inclusive. But it goes back to this whole thing, right, where you can work on one thing and you can be progressive in one area, but that doesn't guarantee that you are perfect, right, that you don't have work to do. And I think if you're a white man who is listening to this program and you feel uncomfortable or hurt or targeted when KP's like, it makes me uncomfortable when you're at my shows. Maybe it's more like, you know, maybe it's really uncomfortable if you're right at the front, given the histories of violence that led you to be standing in that place in the at all. Absolutely right. right. And so I think as allies, which you and I both being white people, this is something that a conversation that we need to have, need to continue to have after this podcast and would encourage our listeners to have amongst themselves is to ask how you can do better, how you can make a positive space, still enjoy the art, right? Still consume it, but do it in a way that is mindful of how we occupy physical and emotional spaces. Thinking about the education, right? KP says, educate yourselves. It's not her responsibility to teach us, to explain these things to us. And I think that's why you and I are opening up this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Is like, We need to do that reflection. We need to do that work. If you have any questions, if you're a white listener, white male listener who has any questions, send us an email, recordstoredropouts at gmail.com, and maybe we can set something up and, and have these conversations, right? Or maybe you can tell us about how you've addressed this in the past. I think that would be really cool. As we wind down the first half of this episode, Alex, you do some really great work for the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about bystander intervention and harm prevention. 
Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Yes, I do this work professionally teaching folks about violence and how to prevent it. And I think some of the most important work that's being done around this is kind of framing it kind of like I did earlier, where we're not talking about individual behaviors, actions, beliefs, so on and so forth, because it's really easy to say, oh, that's not my problem. That's someone else's problem, right? What we're really talking about are communities, right? And our relationships to one another are so, so, so incredibly important. And it holds a lot of power for huge social change. And because of that, we all kind of have to, one, see ourselves as all responsible for making the change. We are all part of the community. We all have a role to play. And then, two, we have to actually kind of put that into action. We have to, you know, be a little bit more vigilant, right? And I think... There are several steps that I would recommend, but I think one is just kind of learning more about yourself, which speaks to that education piece you were talking about, thinking of like, gosh, in which ways am I seen as having power? In which ways do I not have any power, right? And then thinking about how that your position is kind of within your larger community too is really important. And I think being able to expand that education to be able to notice when things are going down, right? When someone is committing violence against another person. Now that might be invading someone's personal space. That might be, if we're th- talking about like a show experience, that might be, you know, dancing or invite or trying to get people to dance with you when they might not want to. And maybe doing that repeatedly when someone said, no, I'm okay. I don't want to do this because that's something I've seen uh, and experienced personally. Or maybe it's folks talking really, really loudly and disrupting the space or the show. That happens so frequently and it's always really... It's obnoxious, but it gets to be unnerving, I think, depending on the tone. And I think particularly when it's, you know, men with, you know, deeper voices talking loudly in the back, taking up a lot of space, particularly when artists are queer or a gender minority that we're watching. So being able to clue in when folks are speaking about experiences that they're having or have had and being able to pick up on those red flags that something's not quite right. There are lots of ways to do that. And I'd love to, I give workshops on this all the time. So if folks have any questions or if we could go into more red flags, maybe at a later episode, I would love to do that. But I think after noticing that, like, You really got to pay attention to what's happening in your gut and decide if it's safe for you to intervene or not. And, you know, the reality is it might not be safe in all instances, and that's okay. But the things that we can do is kind of like either directly intervene, approach one of of the two people or multiple people involved and be like, hey, I see what's going on. This isn't okay. Can you stop? Another thing to do might be to distract. So cause a distraction, which is just basically creating space between people or creating time between, you know, when something's happened, let emotions cool off and then address later. And another thing is also to delegate so like there are people for example at shows whose job it is to you know secure the space right and those people you know might be of help in certain situations but sometimes it might just be tapping on you know the shoulder of a friend next to you or talking to the folks around you being like hey do y'all see this this isn't okay how do y'all feel about that and I think it's always okay to check in with people even if you're unsure of what you're seeing too I think that a community where we're all checking in for each other is one where I think we all are likely to feel safer too and I think that with people who are likely to commit types of violence, if they're seeing that folks are checking in with other people as a common behavior, they're less likely or going to be less likely to commit any act of violence, whether that's, you know, invading someone's space or groping or touching inappropriately or violating other boundaries too. And that's just with more of the physical stuff. I think, you know, there are other ways to commit violence against a person, whether that's emotionally or verbally. And I think we're talking about emotional labor too. And I think that's where it gets like, you know, we're a community. We get to decide what it is that we want it to look like. And so thinking about like, how can we intervene when folks are taking up too much emotional space? I think there's a lot of room to grow there. And I think we can kind of use these tips and tricks to do that as well. Thank you so much, Alex, for touching on that. I'm positive that we will go into greater detail in a future episode. But right now we're going to take a break to hear about another podcast on the Tone Madison Network. 
And then right after that, our interview with Catherine Paul and Camus Logue of Black Belt Eagle Scout. Hey, this is Jordan Cohen. AKA Tricks. And I have a new podcast called Digital Form, where I talk to producers, DJs, and other people in the electronic music world. Presented by Someone who is just starting to listen to you will probably notice that you're credited with playing every instrument on every release in your discography. Of course, you can't do this while you're on the road, so I'm wondering why do you record everything yourself? Is it just a matter of logistics, or is there something deeper behind this? I feel like Black Belt Eagle Scout, for me, is a personal project. I, you know, I have the ability to play a bunch of instruments, and so I guess I I thought it would be a cool thing to do to be able to play and record all of instruments for my music. I mean, there are, are a number of people that do that, and it's really admirable to, to be able to see that sort of thing happen. So, I mean, I think it's just my stuff, so I want to be able to put it out through all of me. On April 9th, you released Loss and Relax, the A-side of a 7-inch record that also features a track called Half-Colored Hair. Now, you originally wrote the guitar line for Loss and Relax while recording Mother of My Children, and the song developed as you worked with several musicians, including Haley Hendricks, Amelia Lay, and Nsai Matingu, who wrote a wicked guitar solo for the track. Now, apart from that... What fingerprints did they leave on the final recording? When I was recording the album, I'd come home every day from the studio and I just, you know, play guitar. And I started playing this riff and I thought, like, maybe I could record this because, you know, I'm here. Maybe it could be something that I just, you know, try and develop in the studio. But it didn't really feel right. Like, I was trying to think of some other stuff for the song, but, you know, recording all of the instruments on Mother of My Children coming home, I just was totally exhausted mentally and physically. So I felt like it didn't really have the place to be on the album. When I got home, I started thinking about wanting to play the songs with a live band. And I asked a number of my friends. The first person that I jammed the song on was with my friend Amelia, and she played drums on the song, kind of helped me get the intensity up and playing it live and playing it loud. And then as the year went on, like this was in early 2017, I realized that I wanted to play these songs with more people. I wanted to be able to play them at shows. And so I asked a bunch of my friends if they would play and be a part of the project and help me make them into a, a live show. And I would teach them the song and I'd say like, okay, here's this part, but I'm not quite sure what I'm going to end with. And that moment in particular happened when I was playing with Nsai and she ended up writing this guitar line that is the guitar solo line at the end of the song and I was really really into it and we played that live a couple of times I think she played maybe four or five shows with me in the band and then she couldn't play anymore she had other things that she wanted to pursue and so 
that song was put to rest for like a couple months and then I was like wanting to play more with the band. I think uh, this was throughout that whole year of 2017, we sort of played off and on and then we rested for the winter. And in about January of 2018, I realized I wanted to play the the song again. And I ended up putting together a five-person band that had three guitars and a bass and drums. And we played two shows, one in Portland and one in Seattle. And I had those people playing and like making the songs from other of my children sound way more full and epic than uh, I feel like they've ever sounded. But, and so I wasn't playing in the band at that time, and so I was trying to reimagine what the guitar line was at the end because she wasn't there practicing with us. And it's funny because after you know, I was like, hey, could I continue playing this line? I think I can remember what it is. And she gave me permission, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. And then we played in front of her. She came to one of our shows on time, and I was like, is that what it, was that like what it is? And she's like, that's exactly what it is. Oh, that's lovely. So I guess it stuck with me. <laughs> she's like, yes, have it in the song, but let people know that I, that I wrote it. And so I said, okay. She's one of my best friends, and we've known each other for a long time, so it's also special to have her be a part of that song in particular because you know my music is so personal to me and I feel like I don't know having having somebody else contribute to it I feel like they need to be very close very close to me but yeah I love playing that song now in the recording studio I added a lot of keyboard elements to it and there's an omnichord on it and then it sounds very right to me. Speaking of that omnichord it has this chiming timbre that almost transmutes the meaning of the line, a place where fairies roam. Now you're talking about boats and not sprites, but this magical sound almost makes it seem as though there's this childlike loss associated with the song. And even if you're not talking about fairies, as in the sprites or the magical creatures, there is still this loss here. I'm wondering if you could expand upon the role that fairies have played in your life. When I wrote that song, I was thinking a lot about home because that's where the origin of the intro guitar line came from was when I was writing it at home while recording Mother of My Children. And so I think about home a lot when I sing that song, when I play it, and I it's about a journey going home. And I grew up in the Swinomish Indian tribal community that's in between Seattle and Bellingham in northwest Washington state. And I grew up on an island. It's a big island, but it's still an island. And, you know, I was surrounded by water. And some of the places that we would travel to to go play sports or to go visit friends, you'd have to take a ferry. So that was a very big part of our lives. But I also think about how, you know, ferries, they, they are in the water where my ancestors canoed they're taking up that space and you know although they lend a a very important means of transportation to visit friends and family it's still a remnant of colonization within that area transitioning to the singles cover art we are now joined by camus logue an artist and the drummer for black belt eagle scout Camus, I'm wondering if you can give us some background about yourself and talk a little bit about this painting. Hi, my name is Camus Logue. I'm a Klamath and Modoc tribal member. I'm from Portland, Oregon. Family from Southern Oregon, Chiloquin, and also Portland. And that painting for the seven-inch cover, an oil painting that I did titled Swinomish Senta, which is Swinomish, but the word Senta in Klamath is love. And it's a piece that I did 
for KP as a symbol of my love for her and also just time when we started playing music and spending a lot of time together and so it was a really inspiration for that piece and it's really special that it got to be used for the cover of the album. It's really lovely and many of your works are abstract representations of landscapes. It appears that this one in particular also depicts a mountainside. So I'm wondering how you came upon this style and what it means to you. Well, originally I started doing these abstract landscapes because I was working for the Coos tribe down in Southern Oregon and, and I was trying to come up with a creative way to basically paint, but you know I couldn't do large-scale oil paintings at the time. So I did these small-scale bone carvings called Grimshaw, which I would carve into little piano keys that I got from my old piano shop in Portland when they would refurbish the pianos. They would give me the leftover pieces of ivory from the old pianos, so I would use that to do these little landscapes on. I took that back home with me, so I had all these little pieces, and I would draw them out on a big scale and then paint them in oil. So it was a lot of lines and sort of, I think the the small to large scale also made it extra abstract because it was sort of blowing up this tiny scratched little thing into this bigger piece. And a lot of the the colors and the things that I use are just is layering onto the canvas or onto the, the wood panels, what I see in, in nature. So like there's different layers of rock and trees and water and grass. And it's I'm trying to depict that with the different layers of paint. Absolutely. Well, I have this all up in front of me right now and kind of looking through. So if anyone is interested in checking out Camus's works, you can go to camuslogue.com. And you're also on Instagram and Facebook. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for adding some perspective to this piece. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Cool. (laughs) All right. Thank you both for that. Moving on here... What can you tell us about working with director Angel Tubles while making the video for Lost and Relax? Angel Tubles is an amazing director and filmmaker. I first met Angel at a show that Black Belt Eagle Scout played in, it was a couple months ago, I think. And she was like, oh, I do this film festival and I also do film and I'd love to work with you sometime. So I checked out her stuff and I was like, yes, I totally want to work with another Indigenous woman. Great. (laughs) And so we didn't really know each other, but we traveled to Wanamesh, where I'm from, and I just wanted to do something natural around my reservation. I wanted to be able to show, you know, where I grew up and what the landscape and what the lifestyle is there. You know, it's really important because I talk about where I'm from a lot but you don't really get to see it so I wanted to depict that it's also you know the song is about traveling home so I think it was just fitting to to make that journey and you know we had some sort of ideas about what we wanted to do mainly was just show where I'm from and then have some shots and playing the song there's this particular place called Lone Tree where my tribe does our ancestral fishing and clam digging we do like a net fishing so every year we go out and we set net out in the water and we pull it into fish and that area is in particular is where my ancestors have always done that so we still do that you know to this day and it's a very special area my my grandfather he had a little house on that area and they'd they stay there in the summertime, and, you know, it's just, that's, that's where 
our people have always been, where they are and where, where they will always be. And the tree that's in the scene where I'm on the truck, it's my dad's truck, that's Lone Tree. So I just, you know, I wanted to take the viewer to different parts of the reservation that are important to me. A minor detail that sticks out to me is the Little Tree air freshener that's hanging in your dad's truck. In contrast to Indians Never Die, which emphasizes your connection to the land, this felt like an expression of loss, especially given that it follows a few shots of actual trees. Was this juxtaposition intentional, or was it just kind of a lucky accident? I think it was just a lucky accident, because that was my dad's truck, that's how it always is. <laughs> but, I mean, I can see what you're saying, though, and I guess it's, it, it can be a truth about it, because, you know, that's sometimes how, how the way things are these days with how the government is going and all of the still horrific things that happen in the world. You know, I think sometimes that's just how it is. But it still is very beautiful where I'm from. Still lots of trees, still very green. Elsewhere, you've discussed how the regalia in the Indians Never Die video represent the different cultures within your heritage. And this video features a few other pieces, including a black hat with a colorful, what appears to be beaded rim, one of the many shawls found in your videos, and these heart-shaped glasses that immediately remind me of Kurt Cobain. I'm wondering if you could speak about these choices, particularly in regards to the extent that they work to decolonize and queer the Pacific Northwest style, if at all. That's so interesting that you bring this up, and especially about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. I like those glasses because they remind me a lot of Riot Girl. that like bikini kill I would see in like old photos. And I, I love wearing those kinds of glasses. And they're one of my favorite pairs. Unfortunately, they're scratched, but I'm still hanging on to them. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I feel like, gosh, I feel like this is a big question to try and answer. But I love and I feel like I've been taught to be proud of the dress that my people have and so you know that hat Camus actually gifted it to me it's it's a beautiful hat I love wearing it I love that it's beaded our friend Eva Angus she beaded it around the rim and you know it's kind of like it's a little bit of like a, a quintessential Indian hat and I I like I like being able to like rock that a little bit and in terms of my identity being like femme but also queer and then like trying to figure out like what that means and incorporating different elements of native dress too. Like I feel like I have so many things I want to I guess learn about myself because I'm queer and I'm native yeah. and those are two very kinda of heavy things sometimes and like, it's, you know, sometimes I, I don't feel like I belong to the queer community because I'm Native. And because there's still within, like, white queer communities, there's still racism towards mm -hmm. people of color. And sometimes I just I just don't want to be a part of that. I'm just like, I don't want to be white queer, I, I, you know. And, but what does what being indigenous and queer mean? And so it's, I feel like, for me, it's a, a constant discovery. I feel like I need... I need to write a book or someone needs to write a book. There needs to be some sort of knowledge or even just, you know, I have a bunch of indigenous queer friends and we talk and we, you know, share our stories. And I feel like, you know, that's, that's how, that's how I stay sane and that's how I keep my, my chin up. 
because being queer and, and also being indigenous, you know, like you can, it's a hard time out there sometimes, especially when the government hates you. Right. So, I mean, in terms of like decolonizing that sort of thing, like I think about how I can easily be put into the genre of indie rock. You know, I'm on Saddle Creek, which is, you know, they have a lot of indie rock music in their, within their label. And I feel like I've, you know, identified in a certain way as indie rock musician, but it's different, you know. I'm showing a part of myself that I don't necessarily have to. I could just be a musician. I don't have to be a native musician. I don't have to claim that. And that's okay if people if people don't want to claim that. That's totally fine. But it makes me happy to be able to claim that and to be able to say I'm indigenous and I'm queer. This is my identity and this is what I sing about and I'm willing to share that with you. So I think, like, you know, Putting that out there in visual form through through music videos is is important. I want people to know know that about me. I don't like being like coined as like, oh, she's a native musician. Like somebody recently at a show was like, I can tell your music is like Native American, but oh. it's contemporary. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so ridiculous. Like, no, you don't get it at all. And it's just like people need to to take a step back and to think like, why why do you think that? what in your life has made you think that you know there's a lot of stuff that a lot of misconceptions about native people a lot of things that people don't even know about native people some people don't think we exist so i do it my way for a reason and i think you know as as native people who play music you just do do it however you want to do it well thank you for sharing that part of yourself with us so full disclosure i don't know anything about guitars. But my co-host Alex noticed that you were playing an Ernie Ball Music Man St. Vincent guitar, which has been described as the first guitar to be designed with the quote-unquote female body in mind. In selecting this guitar, how heavily did these design elements or the creator influence your decision, if at all? For me, in this guitar, I first learned about it from She Shreds magazine. She Shreds did a write-up about the St. Vincent guitar, and I did notice that, you know, it was supposed to be designed for quote-unquote women, but that didn't really sway my decision in getting it. She Shreds magazine had some guitars, and I'm friends with Bobby, who does the magazine we live in the same city and are quite close and so I asked if I could borrow one of the guitars that they had just to you know play it because I thought it looked cool and I borrowed it and it was awesome you know the weight of it doesn't hurt your shoulders and it's really easy to play like with changing chords and then also on the back of the headboard there's like these locks that it's just it's really easy to like tune and so I really liked it and then I read more about it and then realized that I wanted one and so I tried to figure out which one and ended up with the white one. It's really pretty and plays really well. Your debut album Mother of My Children originally came out on Good Cheer Records in 2017 and was reissued by Saddle Creek last September. So I'm wondering where are you at in this particular album cycle? And do you have any new material that you'll be releasing in the near future? 
I do have plans to release new music this year, one of which is this upcoming 7-inch. And I really love working with Battle Creek, so we're going to continue to work together. And you should see something later this year from me that's, that's new. In 2018, NPR named you a slingshot artist and suggested that you should open for Mitski, Lady Lamb, Big Thief, etc. Now these aren't too far off from Julia Jacklin, for whom you'll be opening on her upcoming tour. How are you feeling about that? I'm so excited. I love Julia Jacklin's music so much. And, you know, I feel like one of the social media things that I use the most is Instagram. I don't really like Twitter. I don't really like Facebook. But Instagram I love because I love looking at everybody's photos. And I noticed that one day Julia Jacklin started following me on Instagram. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then I was like, hmm, okay. (laughs) And so I sort of did this sneaky thing, and I I messaged her, and I was like, hey, I love your music. It was really cool. It'd be cool to, you know, play a show together someday. Oh, my gosh. Something like that. Yeah. And then lo and behold, she asked me to go on this tour with her. (laughs) So (laughs) you feel like, you know, I feel like musicians are, are really receptive to that sort of friendship between between one another and just being able to help one another out in this strange world i love that about her and i'm excited to meet her and i'm excited to play these shows um most of them are sold out so that's really really awesome and i'm I'm excited to just be able to be a part of it and to play music and to meet new people so it's going to be really fun in previewing your show at communication here in madison One of the things I wanted to stress was that this is going to be a really intimate show. Now, I'm wondering, what kind of venues will you be playing with Julia? It seems like they'll be at least a little larger. Yeah, I mean, some of them are are kind of smallish rooms, but nothing as small, like, because the capacity at uh, communication is 75 people. And I think, like, the smallest room that we're going to play is, like, maybe 200 people. But most of them are, like, 300 to, to 400 So I think there there will be some intimacy to the shows. Well, we wish you luck in this really exciting time. KP, Camus, thank you both very much for speaking with me today. We hope to catch you really soon, and we're very excited to hear what comes next for Black Belt Eagle Scout. Thanks. Thanks. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Thank you to Scott Gordon and Tone Madison for giving our project a virtual home. If you're interested in supporting local journalism, you may become a Tone Madison sustainer at tonemadison.com slash donate. Tone Madison is housed in communication, which you can learn more about at communicationmadison.com. Hey, big thank you to EJ, Shannon, and new patron Evangeline for being patrons of this project. If you like this podcast and want us to grow, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash record store dropouts. If you can't do that, though, please like, rate, subscribe, do whatever you do with podcasts. That would really help us out, and we just appreciate that support as well. Thank you also to Disc and Saddle Creek Records for the use of the song Communication as our theme music. Hey, Alex, do you like that song? I really do like that song. Yeah, people should go support that band. And you can learn more about them on Bandcamp. You can find Saddle Creek online. They're really cool. I also want to thank Catherine Paul and Camus Logue for making the time and space to speak with us after their show while they were on tour. That was really nice of y'all. So thank you for that. 
If there's an album, video, or artist you want us to discuss, please drop us a message at recordstoredropouts at gmail.com. We've got a few cool things coming down the pipeline, but can always use more suggestions. And remember, do you want to do it? Always judge an album by its cover. <laughs>